Welcome to this special podcast series, Beyond the Shock, sponsored by Zoll Medical Corporation. Hello, everyone, and thanks so much for joining our podcast today. I'm Tony Ringelstein with Zoll Medical, and joining me today is my colleague, Stacy McCauley. Stacy is an RN by background with 10 years bedside experience in pediatric acute care in Indiana and since 2014 has led our clinical support specialist team. Thanks a bunch for joining me today, Stacy. Thank you, Tony. Also joining us today is our guest, Elliot Grassman. Elliot is an MICU assistant nurse manager from Freighted Hospitals in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Welcome, Elliot. We're so glad you could join us today. Hi, thanks for having me. Our discussion today will involve exploring the roles of ACLS and BLS nurses throughout the hospital, and specifically how these roles factor into the response and treatment for sudden cardiac arrest. So Stacy, I'm gonna to toss this first question your way. I know that you and your team are regularly visiting hospitals across the country. That includes both large multi-center hospitals as well as much smaller hospitals. What is your experience with the mix of ACLS to BLS nurses? And is it different today than 10 years ago? Or what about even since pre-pandemic? Thanks, Tony. Great question. We do travel all around the country. We see hospitals of all different sizes. And even if I think back to my experience as a bedside nurse, I think we're seeing a different mix now of ACLS versus BLS nurses than we were a decade or two ago. And I remember back to when I started my nursing career, every nurse, regardless of if you were a med surge nurse, you're an ICU nurse, PCU nurse, every nurse RN needed to have ACLS or PALS training. It was not just BLS. And that has really shifted over the years. And I think there's a couple of different reasons why it's shifted. If we think about how often the acute care nurses are utilizing their ACLS skills, the volume is not there. So do I understand why this mix has changed? Absolutely. But Elliot, I'm curious to see what type of mix do you have on your unit or even your hospital? Are you seeing a similar trend? We are. With the help of org learning, I was able to do a little bit of digging. And from the freighter hospital system for BLS, we have 9,000 freighter employees that are BLS trained. And those are all direct patient care healthcare providers in the inpatient and ambulatory setting. For ACLS of the freighter system, we have 1,600. So about 15% of our staff are ACLS trained. And the ACLS roles are our ICU nurses, our critical care providers, rapid response nurses, all of our respiratory therapists, and we do have some progressive care units, as well as anyone doing procedural sedation. But what we're seeing a little difference in, kind of as you're sharing, is the progressive care units that are ACLS trained, but definitely not subject matter experts. So do they feel comfortable in the certification that they hold, but are the skill sets? Yeah, I think that's a really good point because, you know, they're not using it as frequently. And if we look at the BLS provider scope of practice, it points to immediate CPR and the use of an AED, which is really what we need all providers to be able to do and to be able to do really well until the code team arrives, right? So if we can just really point people to refine those skills, it will help patient outcomes. The thing that I have noticed, though, is when we look at these BLS providers, their scope of practice says high quality CPR and 
utilization of the AED, but there's almost a reluctance of those BLS providers for using an AED. And I think that when we're in that BLS course, we're taught to use an AED like a box on the wall, right? We're not taught to use the crash cart defib in AED mode. So there's almost this disconnect of providers when they arrive to the bedside of like, I'm a BLS nurse, I can use an AED, but the crash cart defib is not an AED. They don't see it that way. And some hospital protocols don't even allow for that, for the BLS caregivers to use the crash cart defib in advisory mode. And if we think about our patient's survival, we know that patient survival diminishes with each minute that we don't provide a shock. So if the patient's in VFib or pulseless VTAC, every minute that goes by, their odds of survival decrease by 10%. So we want to start that CPR, get the pads on the patient and utilize that crash cart defib in AED mode. And I would say, you know, and I mentioned this in our last podcast episode, that the response time to cardiac arrest in public venues is sometimes better than a BLS provider in a hospital especially casinos. I mean, if we look at Vegas, they have some of the best response times because they have that availability of AEDs. Elliot, what are your thoughts on all of this? You know, what's working for your hospital? Do you have any new challenges that you've seen? And, you know, what are you all doing? We, with our mixed ratio of BLS to ACLS, we have so much focus on our resuscitation and our medical emergency team that we really have quite robust ACLS training. And when you came to our hospital in September, we weren't sure how our BLS providers were going to perform during these mock medical emergencies. And we were blown away. Our focus for BLS is really championing their practice so that they can feel comfortable in those first five minutes, that their response times, as you're seeing in the public venues, can be replicated in the inpatient settings or in the hospital settings so that those first five minutes do feel comfortable. Our ACLS providers get a ton of review in code situations, and I can only attribute that work to our resuscitation committee, but our BLS doesn't get that much review. So why I'm getting to be here today speaking with you is because of the BLS review we were able to do at Raider Hospital with you, Stacey. Thanks, Elliot. And I have to say my team was absolutely wowed by the program that we ran at your hospital. Six of the nine mock codes that we ran across that day that we were there were in acute care areas. And every time you called a code and had your BLS providers walk in the room, I feel like my jaw just dropped to the floor because you can tell that your nurses felt empowered to do exactly what they needed to do. And they were able to start CPR, get the pads on the patient and turn that defib on in AED mode. And I remember you saying, hold tight, let's not get too excited just yet after the first few. And it was over and over and over that you just had that performance level that was incredible. Thank you. It was really cool. I do believe that you were able to share with us that after those nine codes, our response time was 1.35 minutes to the first shock in our acute areas. And I am just beaming with pride of how our hospital you definitely should be because AHA recommends less than two minutes and it is a struggle to get there, right? But the fact that you were far less than that two minute mark, I would just say really speaks to the training and education that you're providing your staff. 
Well, thank you both so much for that perspective. And I got to say, Elliot, that is just simply awesome. You know, like one and a half minutes. That is just so darn impressive. So congrats to you and your team for that. And again, thank you both so much for your, your input there. So let's talk a little bit about the difference in training for your nurses. So can you talk to me a little bit about your training program for BLS and ACLS nurses? Is it through in-hospital programs, AHA programs, in-person, online? I know that's a lot of questions there, but if you could just kind of give me your input, what your overall training program looks like for those different types of nurses. Of course. So for BLS, we have our online simulation with hands-on competency checkoff that is being completed every two years. We have skills fairs that include code card and Zoll reviews. We have our rapid response team does in-house education. They join our staff meetings. In 2020, we added a hot debrief as, again, another informal safe space learning opportunities. And then we do have something that's called the Life Support Champion Program, which then allows our BLS providers to be that subject matter expert and then provide that peer-to-peer training. For ACLS, we have a lot. Are you ready for it? (laughs) So for ACLS, they get all of their ACLS training. A fun fact is we are the only hospital in Southeast Wisconsin that still has hands-on instructor-led practice and testing for ACLS. So I think that really has also a huge benefit. While we can't prove it with any direct data, our quality data and the perspective that we're getting collected, I do believe this plays a positive impact in the outcomes that we have. On top of that, we have a PALS review, we do a Braslovag review, we have an IO review, we do two malignant hyperthermia mock events, we have our Zoll and Rhythm reviews, we do a full medical emergency orientation. In 2023, we added CPR coaching. In 2023, we also added capnography reviews as well as a CALS review. In 2022, we added a simulation in our Sim Center for ACLS training, which includes hands-on training, not only for our medical emergency team, but also our non-medical emergency team. So really highlighting our ICU nurses, our rapid response nurses. We do in-situ mock codes quarterly in various departments and various settings to not only help the first five minutes of BLS, but then bringing in the medical emergency team, having those arrive, getting that transition happening and better flowed and then turning into an ACLS review. And then our last one, which was our new one with the Zoll resuscitation program, which was our first time supporting our BLS education with the Zoll. So we do a lot, but it's been very successful and we are proud of the work that we've been working on. So I would say it's definitely been a progressive journey for you. And it sounds like as you've seen results, you've either modified or added on to your educational programs, which is incredible. So I'm thinking about some of the other hospitals that I work with and clinicians that have said to me, I want to get there, but I I don't know where to start. So if you were to give advice to those clinicians, where would you tell them? Where Where should they start if they are not as far along in their journey as you are? To my core as a formal leader, my best advice is engaging the bedside nurse and the healthcare providers that are the key stakeholders. They are the key stakeholders have the most impact in making change, sustaining that progress, supporting and empowering BLS practice creates valuable and positive change within the unit, within the organization. 
For Freighter Hospital specifically, the engagement in our resuscitation committee supported by our medical emergency response service line has been quintessential in our quality outcomes and perspective of successful BLS and ACLS practices by allowing our key stakeholders to have a say in what their needs are. For BLS, that's championing that first five minutes, really simplifying the steps of CPR, getting the backboard on, getting the pads on, starting CPR, defibrillating when appropriate, and creating that safe learning space. For ACLS, that's really letting our subject matter experts transform these initiatives. With the Get With The Guidelines, we, for the last four years, we went from silver to gold, and we've sustained our gold standard with Get With The we have added workflows like code timeouts, pauses, changing who is the members of our medical emergency team. All of those transitions were able to happen because the people that are directly impacting our workflow get to direct the projects that are being yeah, and I would say, Elliot, in working with your clinicians, the keywords that I heard you say was safe learning space. That was so clear to me that your nurses felt that because when we were debriefing the mock codes, you know, we would talk about their quality and we would talk about how wonderful they did with their time to first shock and their CPR quality and things of that nature. But in every code, there were clinicians saying, what can we do better? And asking questions about things that they were maybe unsure about. If it was the clinician that was just on the chest doing compressions throughout the simulation, they maybe would say, hey, can I dig through the crash car because I'm not familiar with this drawer? Or, you know, I noticed you did this with the defib. Show me how you did that. And so it was really incredible to watch that because they just, they felt safe. And I think you're right. That's a huge part of making sure that that engagement happens and that they feel like they can make mistakes in simulation and get better for the real life cardiac arrest. So uh, again, Elliot, I have to say it's just so very impressive, everything I've heard and, and what you've been able to do and just hearing about that safe space where these nurses feel empowered to ask questions and to dig a little deeper on things so they get better. It's so awesome to hear because, you know, that probably doesn't happen everywhere. So again, congrats to you and your team on on all the progress, uh, all the positive progress you've made there. So, so next is, you know, Elliot, you've spoken a lot about how you train your staff, you know, just a few minutes ago, both the BLS and ACLS staff. So let's let's talk a minute about the equipment. So how do you feel the equipment you have, the resuscitation equipment you have, plays into your education for training and just overall resuscitation? Highlighting the BLS providers, I would say it's that simplicity. Turning it on, letting the prompts take care of it. And so Elliot, you know, everybody out there that's listening to this podcast probably does not know what kind of defibrillators you have. So when we worked with you, you all had the Zoll R-Series Plus device. And when you look at that device, the screen just has an on-off button. You know, there's not 25 buttons on there showing you how to pace or cardioverter or change the energy, right? It's very simplistic. And so I would be curious to know, since that crash cart defibrillator only has one option when you get it off the crash cart, do you feel like your BLS nurses perceive that of more like an AED on the wall and it takes away that fear factor? Or do you think they still have that intimidation of it being their crash cart defibrillator? You know, the adrenaline is running and it's hard to always 
think about what are the six other things I'm supposed to be doing when my patient goes into a cardiac arrest. And to the basics of what this R-Series Plus has allowed is it can be as simple as roll the crash card into the room, put the pads on, and follow the prompts because everybody's much more comfortable getting on the chest and the Zoll allows the thinking to be done for them. And so when we look at that type of device, I think a lot of ACLS trained nurses or ICU staff would kind of roll their eyes and say, you know, that's not for me, which is respectable, right? They know how to work the device that has all the different functionalities in it. So with your ACLS nurses, what's their next step once they arrive? So for Frederick Hospital, we do what's called a code timeout, which then is a a smoother transition from approaching the ACLS medical emergency team and identifying roles. But when our subject matter expert that has the role of the ZOL, they then get to hit manual mode and take over. Yeah, so they can do everything they would do traditionally with their ACLS protocols, which is obviously important. They're there for a reason. So I would say, you know, the way your team implemented these mock codes and worked together was incredible. That transition from BLS to ACLS was also very smooth. And again, like my colleagues and I were just blown away by the performance. And as I mentioned earlier regarding the debriefing that you did and how your team really felt safe talking about the different quality metrics, what are you doing on a day-to-day when you have cardiac arrest? How are you debriefing at the bedside? And are you tracking any sort of metrics around quality or around your outcomes data? So similar to as you witnessed the debriefs we did in the mock codes, Those are very similar to what we do in our hot debriefs that we complete at the end of all medical emergencies, as well as we have weekly cold debriefs through our medical emergency response team and review that quality. In all of those scenarios, the purpose of any debriefing is quality improvement, education, and emotional processing. It's definitely not a blaming session. Everyone is welcome to participate. It's even encouraged and really allowing that discussion to be safe, confidential, bring issues up that were identified, but really focusing on that quality improvement. As a result of the debriefing, the training, and all of your different initiatives that you've put in place, what is the patient outcome that you're seeing? Yeah, thanks for letting me kind of toot our horn for a second as well. Like I mentioned, with Get With The Guidelines, we've had four years in a row of goal recognition from 2020 to 2023. Our outcomes are really showing that best results with the consistency in our medical emergency teams. Our CPC data has been one to highlight. For the data that we've been able to collect from 2017 to 2023 for our cerebral performance category, that CPC category, we have been at a 91% for achieving a CPC of a one or two. So that means that they are not only recovering from the event, but walking out of here as close to their baseline as possible. In our fiscal year 23, our data had showed 100% in our quarter three of our CPC data of one or two, which has just been super impressive. 
I have to believe that the reviews, the performance, those outcomes are directly affected to how our staff are being trained, the performances that are happening directly at the bedside are getting those outcomes. So, wow, Elliot, that is, and I know I'm repeating myself, but it is, especially when you hear that the outcomes data, it is just so super impressive to see what you're doing there at Freighter. So again, congrats to you and your team. So you're focused on comprehensive training and that holistic view starting right from the bedside and your utilization of AED technology and your crash cart defibs is really amazing to hear about, including, you know, that post-case debriefing. So before we wrap up, what are some key takeaways that both of you could share with our listeners as they consider their mix of BLS and ACLS trained staff? So let's go with you first, Stacey. Yeah, Tony, I think it all comes back to regardless of your level of training, ACLS or BLS, you should be empowered to feel that you can give the best possible care for your patient. For the BLS trained staff, this means utilizing the crash cart defibrillator in advisory or AED mode and instilling in those clinicians that the crash cart device can be their AED. They've trained on AEDs and they really should be able to use that crash cart defibrillator in the same way. Stacey, I completely agree. And for us, as I've been able to speak about, it's really training our BLS clinicians about those first five minutes. In those first five minutes, it will make the difference. The ACLS provider is coming. The code team is coming. But our providers knowing that they can start CPR right away, get the crash cart, getting those pads on and analyzing the rhythm right away. And the DFib is there to guide them through those steps. And then the ACLS team can arrive. Elliot, thank you so much for your perspective on that. We're so pleased to be able to share Freighter's story today. The mix of ACLS and BLS staff is evolving quickly and implementing programs that maximize the strengths and confidence of all staff is especially important. Review your post-arrest quality data. Ensure you are using DFib capabilities to their fullest. Advisory mode if you have it, CPR feedback, and include skills fairs and mock codes to develop response skills. Elliot, Stacy, thank you so very much for joining me on the podcast today. Just speaking for myself, as I always do speaking to folks like you, I have truly learned so much. Thank you, Tony. Thank you, Tony. And thank you, Elliot. It's just been a pleasure working with you, and I hope to continue to learn from what you are doing with your staff at Freighter. Thanks to everyone for listening. Our next episode will focus on rapid response teams, including their structure, implementation, and impact on outcomes. This podcast is sponsored by Zoll Medical Corporation.